Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books. Well, I hope these books are my legacy. I hope that I am creating more inclusive workplaces of all sorts, tech, healthcare, and everything else. I hope this has a lasting impact to people. I hope that if people take away one or two things from each of those books that they read, that it makes a difference, that they start that ripple effect and have it just keep going. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's episode, I speak with author Karen Catlin and emergency medicine physician, Dr. Kavita Babu. So Karen wrote a book. It's entitled Belonging in Healthcare, The Better Allies Approach to Creating More Inclusive Workplaces. Kavita and I both share the fact that we are emergency medicine physicians, and we both care about respectful, equitable, and inclusive workspaces. We focus the conversation on the book and about general experiences in academic emergency medicine. We then talk about this time of year, the holidays, and how we can all perhaps adopt and consider a more inclusive approach to parties. Karen and Kavita, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. I'm honored to be spending some time with the two of you. So Karen, as I shared, Kavita and I read your book, Belonging in Healthcare, The Better Allies Approach to Creating More Inclusive Workplaces. And the goal of today's conversation is to highlight you, your work in allyship and in belonging in the workplace, the book, but also to talk about belonging in healthcare. And for listeners that have not read the book, can you give us just a summary of the book and why you, who's not in healthcare, felt like, you know what, I'm going to write this book on healthcare? Yeah, I'm going to start with that. I know because I am a little bit of an outsider. I'm from tech. I spent 25 years working in the tech industry. And that's when I first got interested in diversity and inclusion because as a woman, I was underrepresented. Sort of a long journey, but in a nutshell, that led me to wanting to help people who really cared about being inclusive in their tech workplaces initially, how they could be more inclusive of anyone who was underrepresented through everyday acts of allyship? What are the small things they could do every day if they only understood some of the challenges that people who are underrepresented, marginalized, were facing? And what could they do because of the privilege, the power, et cetera, that they have in the workplace? So it goes back almost 10 years I started doing this work. I initially just started a Twitter handle sharing simple things people could do every day. And based on interest from people, followers on Twitter. I started speaking about this and now I have written a number of books. I can't believe I'm coming out with my fourth book on how people can be better allies. At any rate, the first book I wrote is called Better Allies. And I have a friend who works in healthcare who recommended it to his wife. For a long time, she was saying, I like your friend, Karen Catlin, but I don't want to read a book about being a woman in tech. It makes no sense for me as a healthcare provider. Well, he nagged her and nagged her, and eventually she read the book. And she reached out and she told me some things that I'll never forget. She told me, Karen, 
your book resonated with me so much as being someone who sees some of these underrepresented things, these marginalizing activities. Your book is going to help me be a better leader. She's a leader of a large healthcare hospital sweep system in the Midwest. Your book, Karen, is going to help me deliver better patient care. And when she told me that, and I must admit, this was at the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of people who didn't work in healthcare really cared about the frontline workers, all the work that Risa, you and Kavita and so many others were doing and felt so much like, what can we do from the cozy little rooms and houses and stuff? I then started thinking I could write a book. I could write a version of Better Allies that would be tailored to healthcare. And I would do that by interviewing people and reading a lot. I read so many JAMA articles. I didn't even know how to pronounce JAMA at the beginning of this process. But anyway, did a lot of research, did a lot of interviews, and that led me to writing the book. So what is the book? Just briefly, the book is a series of chapters that cover different scenarios in the workplace that are typical for healthcare. You know, what happens in meetings, whether those are daily rounds or administrative meetings or conferences and so forth. What is happening when we are thinking about recommending talent, um, whether we are a professor doing that for students or coworkers looking out for each other? What's happening in the day-to-day, chapter by chapter, where the activities that are happening, the things that are happening that aren't inclusive, and what can an ally do to be more inclusive? Kavita and I related a lot with this book. I shared with you that I've read it twice. Kavita joined me today and I was so delighted. I knew the book would resonate with her because we have had similar experiences, complementary, not the same, but very complementary experiences as women in academic emergency medicine. Kavita is emergency medicine. She's also toxicology. And I'm so proud. I love saying that she's chief opioid officer and she's so much more than that. But she and I often ping each other when we see something in the literature. And I want to say it like that, the literature. And I have published three articles. And every time she comes back to me saying, thank you, I think I'm going to use this. Or you described a phenomenon I'd experienced, but I didn't quite know the term. And so three of these articles, I'm going to state, and then Kavita, take the mic, stop protecting good guys how to tell if someone is deliberately sandbagging diversity efforts, and six reasons why all leaders should have term limits. I am so glad that the two of you are doing the work that you're doing. And the thing that I would say about academic medicine is that it tends to be an incubator for brilliant people who oftentimes have acquired leadership skills without necessarily being taught leadership skills. And when I have the opportunity to sit down and breed work like Reese's, just having names for certain phenomena, having approaches and strategies has been really critical to navigating some of the most difficult times in my career to date. And Karen, I loved your book. I thought it was just the perfect read for this time. I've taken so much from it. And so I'm, again, really excited to be a part of this conversation. But thank you for bringing this to us in healthcare, because I think that belonging is the secret sauce. It's what allows us to acquire talent, to retain talent, to push back against burnout. And I'm so glad that I have some of the language that you presented, because I think that it's going to also make me a more effective leader and physician. And your, your friend's wife was exactly right that you've given me more tools for my toolkit. So thank you. Kavita, what's one thing 
What's one thing that sticks out to you from the book? I think that one of the biggest challenges for leaders in general, and, and academic medicine is no different, is that you put so much hard work and heart and ego into your creation of a workplace and into what workplace culture looks like. That when somebody challenges you and says, we could be doing things better, I think that there's an innate sort of reflex for folks to want to say, I'm going to defend our culture. I'm going to defend who we are. But really, I think between your writings, you know, what we're seeing from Harvard Business Review and thought leaders, what folks are really looking for is they're looking for curiosity, humility, and inclusivity. And I think those are the key parts of leadership. But sometimes it's hard to operationalize in the moment. And my favorite quote from Karen's book was to be curious, not furious. I feel like I should be wearing that around all the time. And every time that you raise a challenge about your work environment, could we be doing this better? That should be like some sort of safety button that people are able to press and just sort of diffuse the hard feelings on any side of a conversation in favor of humble curiosity or sort of a sense of inquiry because we're good at that, right? Like we're good at that in academic medicine. But that frame shift from I'm going to defend my creation to how could we make this better? I think that's foundational. Yeah. Karen, before you jump in, I was just going to say, because Kavita texted me, and this is what she said in completing your book. Here's my observation. We don't often talk about how belonging changes after you're an upstander, particularly speaking truth to power. I know you know this. So go ahead with the curious, not furious. And what happens when we upstand as directed and as we think we're supposed to? Curious, not furious. I am so glad you picked up on that, Kavita, because it's something that I use, I feel like almost every day. Even though many people look to me as an expert in workplace allyship, I still make mistakes. I make mistakes in my newsletter that I send out every Friday. I just don't quite get it right. I make mistakes when I'm answering questions at conferences and events I speak at. I know I get things wrong. If someone points it out to me, I take a deep breath because the defensiveness is just natural. But I take that deep breath and I think curious, not furious, Karen. I need to be curious. I need to understand what's going on. I need to understand why that person took the time and kind of the mental energy to give me feedback. What's this all about and what can I do better? So it is a guiding principle for me in the work I do. I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. What Kavita's reflection struck me as is it's hard to speak up. It's hard to upstand in the moment, but also Jennifer Freed talks about the whistleblower and we don't honor the whistleblower. And so I'm wondering if you have any insights and thoughts about what happens when you upstand. Yes. And there is research that shows that people who are underrepresented in their workplace, when they are those upstanders, they do face a penalty more so than people who are in the majority. So I want to acknowledge that. 
The second thing I want to say is when I was first doing my work on allyship, I was trying to write to the white men out there who are in the positions of power. I wanted to primarily get them to realize they had a role to play here. Sometimes it isn't even that hard. They might already be doing some of it and they should be doing more. But I wanted them to feel that sense of responsibility that they'd never felt before because they weren't experiencing the exclusion that so many others are. And in terms of what happens when you do act as an upstander, when you take action, there can be this beautiful ripple effect. And I write about this in my books, this ripple effect of when you are a dominant person in a room and you're acting in support of someone, you're mentioning that you learn something from them, you're endorsing them wholeheartedly, for example, that can shift a culture of any regular meeting that's going on. And others in the room will start doing that too. So I love that notion of a ripple effect of creating more allies by having a few important people, we'll call them VIPs, respected people start acting even more of this in their everyday kind of workplace actions. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it's difficult because what I would say is that much like today, the folks who I see focusing on allyship tend to be rooms full of women. And I often feel like we're preaching to the choir because we we do understand the need for upstanding. It's interesting to me because my better half is an awesome ally. And it's, it's just incredible to see how he advocates for people who are in minoritized situations and in these sort of professional environments, how much impact that can have. But when we talk to rooms full of women, I think that the idea that upstanding and belonging may run counter to each other is essentially important. I'm okay speaking to rooms full of women. Here's why. Because... Every one of us has some privilege that we bring to work every day. And I'm a white woman, which means I can navigate workplaces in a very different way than a black woman, for example. I'm straight, which allows me to navigate things differently, perhaps, than if I were LGBTQ+. I am not yet living with a disability. I say yet because that's probably in my future. It's like part of aging. But Again, these are all sources of privilege. I have stable housing. I have a stable relationship. I have money in the bank that allows me to take certain risks with what I do. And in my book, I listed 50 ways you might have privilege at work because I wanted to make sure that even if it was, for example, a room full of women, that every single woman in that room felt empowered that they could be an ally to someone who doesn't have the same privilege that they have. And that backlash I was talking about doesn't happen. Like as a white woman... If I am advocating for black coworkers, I don't face that backlash because I'm not part of that group that's marginalized that I am advocating for. So I need to do that and I should be doing that as well. And that insight is so powerful. And thank you. Thank you for reframing that because I feel like when I'm in rooms full of women, they're some of the most powerful people I know. But the unexpected consequences of doing what you're taught and doing what's expected in academic medicine are just they're shocking when they happen because you cannot find an academic medical center that doesn't have a strong position on their inclusivity, on their culture of advocating for upstanding, on their curriculum against dealing with bias and microaggressions. You know, it's it's part of our fabric. It's who we want to be. And I love that we're aspirational about that, but practically 
and again, I, I don't want to speak for Risa here. I think sometimes the gap between who we envision we are and where we are is a real challenge for people and women, especially in academic medicine. I want to echo that gap and where that gap appears. One adjacent topic of belonging that Kavita and I pre-met on is regarding alcohol and other drugs in the workplace. Karen, in your newsletter, which I read weekly, you have mentioned this. It's a little bit more subtle in the book, but this is sort of socializing and behaviors around alcohol and other drugs in the workplace. And because Kavita is a toxicologist and some of what she's posted on social made me think that she feels similarly. And this is also as emergency physicians, alcohol, I believe, does not quite get the respect it deserves. Meaning it's a drug, it's legal, and it's socially acceptable, but it's a drug. And we see devastating effects of alcohol, alcohol use disorder, alcoholism in the emergency department. And specifically at the time that this episode is dropping around the holidays. And I have three brief vignettes I want to share where it has popped up at work. And I'd love both of your reflections and how this is actually an aspect of belonging in the workplace that I think doesn't also get as much attention as it could. So one of my hospitals I worked, the leader of the department every year would give some very expensive bottle of wine to the other leaders in the department. And some of the leaders were in recovery from addiction some basically lacked enzyme and therefore could not actually metabolize alcohol, so didn't drink. So these were two key people who didn't drink, yet the gift given every year from the boss was alcohol. Another would be at our resident retreat where there'd be a lot of alcohol. And for the people that didn't drink, there wasn't really a social or recreational activity to do at this resident retreat, which was supposed to be you know, a way of bonding, socializing, and getting time to decompress away from the hospital. And finally, Muslim colleagues, Muslim colleague friends who don't drink. Now, every Muslim doesn't make that choice, but I have trained two colleague friends who were observant and did not drink alcohol. And at graduation, a gift that was given was a bottle of alcohol. And I didn't know that was going to happen. So post-event, I spoke with my colleague friend and apologized. And I just think that that is an aspect of belonging that just really is not appreciated. Karen, what are your thoughts on that? And then Kavita, I'd welcome yours. Yeah, there's so many reasons people may choose not to imbibe, I'll call it. You listed so many. And then there's also, you know, pregnancy or, you know, other things that are going on. They're the DD uh, from designated driver. Who knows? One of the things that I think is really important is if there is going to be alcohol at an event, I always say offer some mocktails with those cocktails not just like bottle of water, like make it interesting for the people who aren't having an alcoholic drink. So they get a great choice as well. So there are many mocktails to choose from, and you could have your signature mocktail as well as the signature cocktail. So that's one thing to just make sure that everyone feels welcome. The second thing we can do is, you know, team building events that are in places, bars, for example, after work, do some things that don't involve alcohol for those team building events. Yeah, Kavita, how about you? Do you have some additional ideas? Well, and I think that my attitude towards this has changed a lot over the years in large measure because of leadership roles and because of my role in medical toxicology. 
I grew up with the idea of liver rounds. This was something that was really sort of not just accepted, but encouraged in my medical training that, again, as, as Risa mentioned, the bottle of wine from the chair was totally what you expected at, at Christmas time or during the holidays. And I think that overall, just centering healthy habits and centering wellness is so critical for all workforces. And, and I would argue this is a, a perfect time to talk about this in medicine right now. We saw a marked increase in the use of alcohol, alcohol use disorder, alcohol-related crashes during the pandemic. We're now facing epidemic burnout in healthcare, and normalizing or encouraging alcohol is just counter to some of our other goals. So I think that to both of your points, you know, looking at sort of non-alcoholic gifts, looking at centering programs on things like this being a social hour rather than this being a wine tasting and, and really kind of encouraging people to participate in that regardless of their choice to consume alcohol or not. They're still wanted. They're still welcome because the focus is on trivia. You know, the focus is on, on something else. I think that's awesome. And the last part is that I guess I would say that when you look at what alcohol-related illness costs workplaces across the country, across sectors, this is a very difficult time of year where you see this kind of confluence of the holidays and sort of increased social alcohol intake in addition to workplace-sponsored functions that involve alcohol. And unfortunately, right now, some of the work I do is with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And this is their drive sober kickoff time of year. And so I think that not only is this important, but it's very timely, Risa. Thank you for highlighting this piece because it has profound safety implications for our workforce, our colleagues, and our patients. So thank you. Peer pressure. If we as allies notice that there's peer pressure at any kind of event to take the shot, for example, or whatever it might be, let's stand up. I'm just imagining some new employee joining our team and they're like, you know, okay, let's do shots. Let's go do shots and everything. And that peer pressure starts. We can pull them aside. And here's another quote from my book is just like, speak up with, hey, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. Reinforce a more inclusive culture, whether it's taking shots or something else, to just set the tone like, hey, you, you may not know this about our group, but we don't do that here. It's a great thing to pull out when we're not quite sure what else to say. Okay. I love that ad so much, so much. I wanted to ask, Karen, your legacy. I'm going to list your five books and share with listeners how you see this as your legacy. Better Allies, Everyday Actions to Create Inclusive, Engaging Workplaces, Belonging in Healthcare, The Better Allies Approach to Hiring, Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking, and The Better Allies Way. Well, I hope these books are my legacy. I hope that I am creating more inclusive workplaces of all sorts, tech, healthcare, and everything else. I hope this has a lasting impact to people. I hope that if people take away one or two things from each of those books that they read, that it makes a difference, that they start that ripple effect and have it just keep going. One can hope. I hear so many anecdotal stories, which I like to call anecdata, because, hey, that's the data I collect or these, these stories people share with me. And I know it is making a difference. 
And I appreciate this opportunity to be talking about my books, Risa. You're so awesome for having me. You're being a great ally for me here and helping basically get the word out about the books. It means the world to me. Thank you. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Karen Catlin and Dr. Kavita Babu for joining me in conversation. I really enjoyed our get-together. Three encouragements I have for you listeners. Number one, every Friday, you can receive the Better Allies newsletter. Please sign up for it today. Number two, think about times or ways that perhaps you haven't felt like you belong in the workplace. or Perhaps you don't think you've really had that experience, but ways that you could have maybe created more inclusivity for your teammates. And I encourage you to make small changes to create better, safer, more respectful workplaces. And number three, alcohol. As an emergency medicine physician, I can tell you that I see the acute effects and the chronic effects of alcohol, not just on patients, but on patients' families, loved ones, and caretakers. So when you are setting up your workplace event, when you are celebrating the holidays, think about ways that you can create better belonging and more inclusivity for people that may be sensitive or having a relationship with alcohol that may not be the same as yours. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DePorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.